As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel, and we have got a lot to talk about today, Stu, because we're going to dig into the big realignment retrospective on The Athletic. It's been a fun week. We've been working on this for months, but finally getting to put this out into the world, this realignment revisited blitz. We often talk on here about how Realignment is the subject that college football fans can never get enough of, and we get questions about it on our Audible uh, email all the time. So we decided to, to, you know, between the staff, we spread it out. There's about 20 stories coming this week, some of them you've seen already. And I think the one that we knew would get probably the most interest is David Ubbins' deep dive on what exactly happened in those two weeks in June of 2010 uh, when the Pac-16 seemed like it might become a reality. So... You know, there's a lot of other angles. I encourage people to go on there and check it out throughout the week. But uh, let's bring on David. We are pleased to be joined now by our colleague at The Athletic, David Oven. David is our Tennessee writer. That's his day job. But he covered the Big 12 for a long time before that. And so when it came to this uh, realignment revisited series that we're running this week, uh, it was a no-brainer to get him involved. And it ended up with a very well-done story on the the I guess you would say the rise and fall or the near near birth and then death of the Pac-16. David, what was it like reliving this period? Because I know you were right at the center of it when it was actually happening in 2010. Yeah, it was funny when I would give somebody a call and I would uh, you know start the conversation. You know, I remember Dan Beebe was like, "You're you're going to give me hives." Uh, talking about this again, and I think Ian McCaw, Baylor's old AD, was talking about, you know, my stomach hurts just thinking about this again, sort of long days. And so I think that's, you know, this thing has had a, a lasting impact in the actual world of college sports, but the people involved, you know, this was as crazy as it looked on the outside. Um, probably even crazier if you read the story and, and sort of getting a sense of what the days looked like and what that summer was like when you're in charge of an athletic department or a university. And there's literally, when you think about the next 20, 30 years, literally hundreds of millions of dollars and a lot of people's livelihoods on the line. It's a lot of pressure. 
David, one of the things that I remembered and, you know, reading your story, especially, and especially that story brought back some memories of what I thought was unique about this, just as we're all reporters, is normally people you expect to be reliable sources weren't in that window. Like I remember going to a school, not for anything other than, you know, I was doing a campus visit and the AD and I had a decent relationship and he came up and basically we were talking about stuff and he spoke about things that he was sure were happening. And those things were completely wrong. Now, I don't think I reported what he said. I know I didn't, but I know in the context of, you know, I was still at ESPN at the time. And I remember talking to somebody, one of my, I'm talking to Pat Forty about, you know, we we're just kind of trading notes. And I think a lot of the stuff was not accurate at all. And I remember that just thinking it gives you pause when you could see some of this stuff playing out, not necessarily in real time, but but a little bit like that. And one one storyline that you really got into in your piece uh, that went up on Monday, which I thought was, you know, riveting, was the dynamic with Chip Brown, who is, as most probably many of our listeners know, has been a longtime reporter on the Texas beat. And he had emerged as a go to source with the Pac-12. And I remembered at some point people were like, well, maybe he's getting it from Larry Scott because Larry Scott came from the tennis professional ten- ATP and Chip played tennis at SMU. So there may be his go to. <laughs> and then, you know, it was like people were trying to, you know, that's what everybody tries to do. They try to guess people's sources a lot of times. And then you had that dynamic between him and Joe Shad, who at the time was an ESPN reporter. And obviously, as you got back into it, Chip was right. Shad was, you know, monumentally wrong. When you were working on this piece, were there things that you were like, oh, yeah, I completely forgot about this? Or was it really eye opening to kind of see what some uh, perspective in a decade can do for people's memories? You know, I think the biggest thing that I sort of learned that I don't think I realized at the time was just how much disagreement there was at almost every single campus between the university administration and the athletic administration. Just how different the opinions were um, when the university administration is thinking about endowments and partnering up with you know bigger universities, especially at Texas. You talk about the Stanfords and the USC's of the world. And the athletic folks were thinking a lot more about the actual lives of the athletes themselves and just the realities of, of trying to make this work and the life that you're asking people to sign up for. I, I think the university aspect of things in the university administration just that was not really that part that much a uh, part of the conversation and you know i was covering it more from the big 12 side at the time so talking to some pac 12 people it was interesting to hear you know the presidents were kind of buying into larry scott's plan he was definitely pushing it but just the ad's you know i don't think i ever got a hard number because they didn't ever ever take an actual vote but there were only a couple ad's that were into it. the vast majority of the pac 12 ad's at the time were very much against this thing happening. And, and I don't think I realized that there was that much sort of discord on the campuses themselves. So there will always be a little bit of dispute about how exactly everything went down. But obviously, you know, the thought then, and it's kind of reinforced in your story, is that this whole plan that Larry Scott had hatched, it kind of all came down to whether Texas was or was not going to be on board. The Lost Dawes in your story, make, who was the AD of Texas, longtime AD of Texas, makes it seem like they were never that into it in the first place. Others might say that, 
you know, they were a lot closer to joining than was portrayed to the best of your knowledge now after going through all this. How close were we really to the Pac-16 becoming a reality? Well, you kind of touched on it. I think it depends on who you ask. I mean, I think I, I think I generally agree with the Lost Odds when he says, or believe him, I should say, when he talks about, well, I don't know if it was ever really that great. But I think if you, you know, Bill Powers obviously had, had uh, uh, died earlier this year. We weren't able to talk to him. But I think if you would talk to people in the university administration at the time, I think there were a lot more... I think the rest of the Big 12 was fortunate that he was such a, um, uh, I guess, a hulking presence on campus, a powerful figure. Because if you have a more passive AD, he might be influenced a little bit more heavily by those universities, you know, those university sources and those kind of folks that that uh, that wanted this. And and I think he was going to do what he felt like that they wanted to do, and he had influence. You know, as much the other way. And, and when, when donors or boosters or people are calling him, I think he can talk them out of it if he doesn't feel like that's right. So I think that I, – I, the, way, the way that I would say it is I don't think that there was ever contracts on the table, the pen out, and somebody busts through the door and tackles them, you know, a last-second save. I think things were trending in that direction. And I think, you know, Larry Scott said in the piece, you know, sometimes things ebb, uh, things ebb and flow. And, uh, you know, the winds changed a little bit. And I don't think – you know, we kind of got into the piece. It's into it in the piece itself, but there's not one smoking gun or one singular reason why this did or did not happen. I think there's, you know, the official word from DeLoss. There's, you know, theories from other people around the league. There's, uh, you know, some sinister, some more sinister theories that Chuck Ninas threw out there uh, that you can read if you uh, if you, you know, go in and, and check out the piece. And I think that's what you. That's kind of where you have to leave it. Is I think in a certain way, all of those things can affect it, whether it's verbally or subconsciously or all those things. I think people are thinking about all those things. So to answer your question, pretty close, but not that close, if that makes sense. So I think that there's no real firm answer for that in terms of just exactly how close it was. Guys, I want to open this up to, to Stu also on this. What if, what if Shad was right and the Big 12 went away? How much different do you think Larry Scott and the Pac-12 would be looked at right now if you had Texas and certainly OU as part of the Pac-12 footprint? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating question because, you know, you'd be talking about just a completely different property than anything we've, we've ever seen in college sports. You know, right now, Larry Scott is struggling and there's any number of things you can pinpoint of, that he's done regrettably, including going at it alone with the Pac-12 network. But at the end of the day, he's limited to the 12 schools that he has. And a lot of them don't have huge fan bases. And obviously the time zone is a, is a factor. But if you're talking about a, a college athletics conference that has USC, Texas, Oklahoma, Oregon, and, and so on, I don't think it's a... Now, we don't know what the dominoes would have been from there. I'm sure there's a lot of different... A lot of things would have gone differently in the rest of realignment. But... You know, would we be looking at a world where uh, instead of the SEC and Big Ten kind of being in a, in a tier of their own in terms of revenue and, and just kind of national brand recognition, would the Pac-16 or whatever it ended up being called would be one of, if not the, you know, most powerful entities in college sports? That's that we don't know. I think the biggest thing is the questions that would have come up in that. I, I, I think the dominoes that fall post pack 16 that's an interesting conversation i mean west virginia where does west virginia end up it is an interesting conversation uh, i mean that's part of this is is looking back and thinking about that 
time. I just remember the uncertainty of the whole thing and how much no one knew what people were going to value five years from now. And I think even looking back, there's still questions about what that would have looked like and, and what could have happened or would have happened. Um, but on that whole Shad Chip, Chip Brown thing, it's pretty interesting. And uh, I think, Bruce, I think you were still with ESPN at the time. I forget. I was, yeah. 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 I think that there was this perception outside of ESPN that I wish was reality that the the line between ESPN, the rights holder, and ESPN, the journalism entity, was being blurred a little bit, and it really wasn't. We weren't getting any like updates of, hey, this is what's happening here, this is what's happening here. I think it would have aided our efforts a little bit, but I remember at the time – Anytime we wrote anything about the Longhorn Network, we had to run it up, you know, a bunch of lawyers at ESPN. And it was just it made life really hard covering it, especially for me personally, as somebody who was a lot younger then. Uh, it was just difficult. And I think we weren't getting quite as much sort of insight into what was happening uh, as I think I, I think all of us would have liked at the time, especially those of us who were reporting on it, you know, on a day to day basis. Well, one of the things I remembered back then, David, is actually the, the last town hall I think I went to as an ESPN employee. I was up in Bristol and they put up the five biggest com- company initiatives and the Longhorn Network was one of those five. I'm trying to remember what some of the other I want to say Grantland might have been one of the other five at that point, too. But, you know, it was as part of the backdrop of this, and I don't remember exactly the timing as what I'm about to say tied into it. But there was an interview with Dave Brown, who was one of the most pe- powerful people at ESPN and in college athletics, who had got he was had moved on to the Longhorn Network from ESPN and had gone on the radio and said some things that I was almost as if he didn't realize he was on the radio when he was saying them publicly about how the Longhorn Network could potentially use that platform as it relates to some of the kids committed to them. And I think when that got got out there, I think especially with, you know, whether you're an Oklahoma or an A&M fan, certainly your arch rivals were kind of like outraged that, wait, they're going to be leveraging this. And so I think there were elements of it where people could say, and I want to say, God, it may have been the former BCAD who made some comment that sounded kind of damning to a lot of folks who saw conspiracies in there. Oh, and yeah, so I, I forgot about that. Yeah, so there were there were definitely elements, David, where I think people had enough ammunition to go, yeah, there's something here. And I think there was a lot of a lot of people who looked at it and goes, wait a minute, if Joe Shad's going to go report this, he couldn't have walked down the hall and just <laughs> said to somebody, hey, am I, is this going to blow up in my face if I do this? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I ultimately, here's my, you know, two cents on this, and that's all it is, is, you know, and I think, David, you probably would agree with this, is as reporters, you're basically as good as your relationships are. And if you have people, they may not necessarily want to be quoted and I probably don't but I think certain people can give you information whether you can go with it or not is a different story well before this turns into crap on Joe Shad night you know as David portrays in that story things were changing by the hour so I mean look it it was wrong and but you know and I guess what I would say is it was it was probably the most high profile uh, example of of, um, incorrect reporting during this but because he's on ESPN and he's on SportsCenter, but a lot of people were getting a lot of things wrong throughout. I mean, remember the the Kansas City radio station that said Missouri's about to join the Big Ten, and uh, you know any number of things. Just both during that period and then subsequent rounds of realignment. And it's it's to speaks to something I think you said earlier, Bruce, which is you would be talking to people who you would ostensibly think would know what's going on, like an AD, 
uh, or somebody else high ranking. And the truth is, like, they were either cut out of it or, you know, maybe they, they, maybe they fully believed something was going to happen, but then a board of regents interfered or, you know, just things were constantly changing. And there was just I, a lot of misinformation being thrown around during that time. Yeah, that, that's why I just think it was like that story, especially, I think for a lot of reporters, I think you kind of looked at the landscape of it and said, all right, I'm going to be super cautious on these things because once it starts after some of these experiences, I can remember the one specific AD where I was like, this is, you know, found out this was not accurate at all. You start to realize, you know, you better be extra careful. And I feel like you shouldn't be careful anyway, especially when, like I said, speaking in absolutes on that storyline is really thorny. And I guess that's, that was a good lesson for a lot of us. Circling back to the Longhorn Network. So not to, give away another story that's about to come, but Andy Staples has a big one on A&M, how A&M to the SEC came to be uh, as part of this realignment series. And it mentions how, uh, you know, you mentioned it, Bruce, Dave Brown going on the radio and advertising that they were going to try to televise high school games. That's one thing that definitely ticked off, not just A&M, obviously, but the whole conference. And then also they were being very aggressive about how much they could try to put on that network. And they were, they had actually approached some point in there, they approached Texas Tech about putting, you know, that year's Texas Tech Texas game on the Longhorn Network, which didn't exist yet. And so, you know, I think I think a lot of people got turned off about this this notion that that this was gonna that ESPN and this enterprise were gonna hold so much influence in the conference. And of course, David's story ends basically in the summer of 2010. But obviously, I think those events began to set in motion or the, the, that those two weeks began to set in motion the events that a year later would lead to A&M, you know, uh, beginning this, what has become a very nasty divorce with Texas A&M in Texas. And I know you caught, caught, caught in the crossfire of that a little bit, David, like it seems like anytime anybody writes about this subject, the, the other school's fans want to chime in and tell you, Oh no, 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 that's not what happened. Uh, <laughs> you're giving them too much credit or, or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the Longhorn Network conversation is always complicated. I think we touched on it a little bit and that Dan Beebe, you know, was talking about as soon as he heard that that infamous Dave Brown interview, you know, he's calling Texas and everybody else in the league and saying, They cannot do this. This cannot happen. This is upsetting the Apple cart too much. And so I think when you when you look back now, a decade later, at some of the conversations surrounding the Longhorn Network, some of it feels like fear mongering, but the flip side of that argument is what does the Longhorn Network look like if Texas has a run like they did from 99 to 2009 post-Longhorn Network launching? What does the Longhorn Network look like if Texas has it rolling instead of just a decade of really kind of struggling and being pretty average? And we might be finding that out soon. You know, I, I think that's I, – I, I'm curious to know what the Longhorn Network looks like in a world where Texas is – maybe not dominating the big 12, but like it's competing for titles every year instead of trying to not have losing seasons. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's part of the conversation. I, I think that, uh, you know, Texas and Texas A&M who we all know are, are not rivals. I think there's always a, a such a touchy subject over who shoulders, how much blame for the end of it. And I think at the end of the day, like they're both culpable in all this situation and, and all of college football loses when Thanksgiving comes and goes every year and we don't get to see that game. Yeah, it always amuses me that basically any time anybody in authority at Texas or Texas A&M now is asked about that, everybody, Tom Herman, Jimbo Fisher, 
the current AD, they'll say, oh, yeah, we'd absolutely want to play them. So then why doesn't anybody just make it happen? Nobody will step up and make it happen. Oh, yeah, sure. I think it would be great if we played again. Well, it's too. Their schedules are full. You don't understand. Oh, yeah. You can't, yeah, you can't, can't out. buy out a game. Once nobody's, you have that game scheduled, yeah. it's done. <laughs> nobody's ever gotten out of a contract for, for a non-conference game. <laughs> I hope when it does happen, I hope that, like, the Texas Bowl or somebody just stands up and we're going to – or maybe it'll be the – I mean, the Sugar – if they ever actually both won their conferences and didn't make the playoff, they'd play each other in the Sugar Bowl. So we shall see. David, before we let you go, you are Tennessee beat writer for The Athletic and do, do a phenomenal job, as, as I think all our readers have already found out. But I know you are on a quest to find out somebody of the, whatever, thousand media members at SEC Media Days in Hoover picked the Tennessee Vols, not just to win the, the SEC East, but to win the entire conference. Is this just a troll job, or do you think somebody actually believes it? Well, that's what I want to know. That's exactly what I want to know. Is it a troll job? Was it a mistake? Was it someone who is deluded? Was it uh, some kind of numbers guru who sees some magic algorithm that none of us can see? I'm very curious to know the full story. And uh, I made an open call on local network television uh, on Sunday. I've sent out a couple tweets. Uh, I've sent a couple emails and – have made zero headway into finding the uh, identi- it, identity of this person. <laughs> would it have? Would it not have to be a troll job, or else that person would write about what they did or admit what they did? I think I would argue that if you do that, then there's a bigger case that that is a troll job because, you know, it, it depends on if you have a platform too. Maybe you're just a, a random, I don't know, blogger. Yeah, but, yeah, but you have a, you have a Twitter. You have a Twitter feed. I'm well, sure I'm you sure, yeah. case, You know why that why you made the argument for, for this, you know, Stu and I talked about this a couple months ago. We were like incredulous that ESPN's, whatever their FBI or whatever the heck they call it had Tennessee, like in the top 15. Yeah. Well, so those numbers, I see where they get that. It's based off recruiting rankings and returning starters, which is a big part of it. It does not factor in two gigantic factors. One that Tennessee's lack of development sort of undercuts their top 15-ish recruiting over the last you know five or six years. And two, a lot of those returning starters, and I'm going to put starters, I have air quotes up as we speak, are going to lose their jobs to underclassmen this year. And so I think that's – I get where those numbers are coming from, but being around it every day, they're just – they're faulty numbers. This idea that Tennessee's going to be – you know, favored to win eight or nine of their games or that they're a top 15 team by these advanced numbers. It just doesn't, it leans too heavily on what you normally lean into and that guys get better as they get older, which was not true at Tennessee for the majority of the Butch Jones era. And also that's, you know, these, they have all these returning starters, which Tennessee does, but you're going to see a lot of new faces and a lot of uh, freshmen, red shirt freshmen and sophomores playing roles and, and guys that are upperclassmen, maybe getting bumped aside. They're still the same team that finished the year playing two unranked uh, Mizzou and Vandy and losing by a combined 88 to 30. So that's the part which was like, wow. I mean, yeah. just just the idea, I think just the idea that somebody think they would win the whole conference is just staggering. But anyway. I would, I'm intrigued. I'd love to know why. <laughs> well, there was, a, there was an eye-opening stat I saw a month or so ago from, I think, SEC Network where since since A&M and Missouri joined in 2012, the conference records of all 14 teams, Tennessee is 13th out of 14, which is insane. This is the Peyton Manning and national championship and 
checkered end zone, 100,000 seats stadium, 13th out of 14. So forget winning the conference. If I'm a Tennessee fan and they get to a bowl game this year uh, in Jeremy Pruitt's second season, that to me seems like good progress. But would that be, if let's say that's the scenario, they go, David, they, they go, um, let's just say they end up at seven and six, whether that's winning a bowl game or, or you know, going seven and five and losing the bowl game. Like to me, that's progress. Is that going to be considered what? disappointing? Yeah, so I think uh, that it boils down to the losses. Oddly enough, last year they lose six games by 25 points or more. That's what has to change. I, I don't, you know, you have to get to a bowl game to sell progress, but bigger than the final record, bigger than even who you beat or who you lose to, are you competitive? Tennessee was not competitive in half of their games last year. That is a problem. And that is the problem that they have to fix. It's one thing if you get whacked by Alabama and Georgia. I don't. I think Tennessee fans. I've found them to be pretty realistic and pretty reasonable of expectations. They know they're not there yet, but you can't be getting whacked around by Vanderbilt and Missouri. Uh, you you, you got to be at least competitive. You need to win those games, but you have to be at least competitive. And so that's where that's where I think 2019 will be judged by is more than the final record, more than who you beat or who you lose to. It's are you competitive? And that was the biggest problem with 2018. And as Jeremy Pruitt tries to grow this program and and sell, hey, we're getting there, that's what has to happen because I think it's very difficult if you're going, you know, you're hosting South Carolina and you lose by three touchdowns or you're going to Mizzou and you lose by 30 again, you can't sell that. Um, I think there's a, a really interesting conversation to be had about whether or not Tennessee is going to join Nebraska as sort of relics of a bygone era of college sports and, and having to recruit outside of your state lines. But that's a conversation, I suppose, for another day. But it's intriguing to see that, that you know, if everything is in place, can Tennessee still get back to being elite? And what does elite look like? Does that look like 45-5 and five over four seasons? Does that look like flirting with a playoff spot you know, in peak years and winning eight games and down years. What does that look like? I'm not even sure what the answer to that question is. I guess time will tell. Stu, the one thing those two schools have in common or kind of are bonded by, the quarterback that a lot of us think will lead Nebraska back into the top 15 was a longtime commit for Tennessee and ended up in Lincoln. Mm-hmm. That's correct. All right, David, we appreciate uh, you joining us as always. The stories are fantastic. The story you did on Monday was great. The story you did on TCU was really good, too. So we, we eagerly await the next thing you uh, publish because it's almost all been gold. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. It's going to be uh, an interesting year, too, to say the least. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks, guys. And let's get to the mailbag, Stu. As always, you can... Write to us at theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Our first question is from your neck of the woods, Stu. It's from Thomas in San Jose, California. Hey, Bruce and Stu, if you could watch a Hard Knock-style docu-series about any team this August, which program would you pick? Let's assume that the show would air each week throughout the preseason training camp and would be a completely uncensored look at the coaches, position battles, and off-field lives. So I have a kind of an unconventional answer. It's not really specific to position, you know, anything that's specifically going on with this team this preseason. I would love to see a series like this on Washington State because for as much acclaim as Mike Leach gets, and we all know he's kind of this unusual guy, I'm not sure I've ever really seen how he runs the program, how he interacts with the coaches and the players on a daily basis. I have this image in my head that he's holed up watching film and for instance, has nothing to do with the defense. So I think he's a guy who is great in press conferences and interviews, 
but has traditionally been pretty closed off in terms of the actual day-to-day coverage of the team. So I would love to see it. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely a colorful character. I mean, I've seen behind the scenes just as, you know, working on his book. What's unique, most unique about him is he comes in often like five hours after the defensive staff is already in there and up and running. And so their their clock is much different. They obviously overlap at practice, but it's it's very, very different. I don't think it's a case of he's holed up watching film. I think it's more a case of, you know, he's talking and he's, sometimes going off in a million different directions in his offensive staff room or surrounded by the quarterbacks or surrounded by the, his offensive staff. But it's, it's, it's about as much like two separate staffs as you could get. Uh, one thing that Thomas's question made me realize, because when I looked at this, I saw position battles and I thought quarterback battles. It's interesting, more so than I can remember in a lot of years, and maybe this is just anecdotal, but Looking at the top 25, you got to go pretty deep into the top 25 to find a, a school that has a genuine quarterback battle. I mean, you, you could go to maybe Washington or Wisconsin or Auburn, but short of that, you don't see a lot. I, I don't know if any of those teams are looked at as top 10 teams. Well, and I think we assume Jacob Eason will be Washington's quarterback. Wisconsin and Auburn do have legitimate. You're right. I mean, usually this time of year, that's the you know, as you get into preseason camp, that's the biggest storyline. And so, obviously, I mean, one of the reasons for that is because of all these transfers and grad transfers. And, you know, there is no battle like there normally would be to succeed Dwayne Haskins at Ohio State or Kyler Murray at Oklahoma. They just went out and signed somebody. But I think it's a good sign. You know, usually if a bunch of teams, a bunch of the top teams have star quarterbacks or experienced quarterbacks, that usually foretells a pretty exciting season. Yeah. Uh, I would agree. Um, look, I mean, some of the other ones, I'd be fascinated by any of these all-access pieces you usually get. It's just, I feel like sometimes the access, what you get from these shows doesn't turn out to be truly all-access. And I don't feel like they're as open as the Hard Knocks HBO shows are. I think that's uh, true. I mean, I've seen a couple... Now, I'm not counting, like, you know, the Big Ten Network does them, the Pac-12 Network does them, but I'm thinking more like there was the Notre Dame Showtime one, there was the... Florida State Showtime one, and then the Michigan Amazon one, I think, are kind of the most recent, what I would consider the hard knock style documentaries. They got good access. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not an NFL team. Uh, there's no equivalent to like showing the heartbreak of a guy getting cut. They're not making it. I think one of the things that has made hard knocks so compelling is that you're, you know, they always focus on a couple of rookies or free agents who. Like this is their livelihood. They're trying to they're trying to keep a job, and we don't have necessarily an equivalent of that with college players. Well, I think what's also different is the NFL teams aren't so much worried about the image of the university right. or recruiting purposes, so they're a little less heavy-handed, I think, in how the editing process goes. And quite honestly, some of those places that do it, you know, whether it's an ESPN or an SEC network, they're more of a rights partner. Whereas you know HBO, I don't think is as is as entangled. Not to say there aren't some entanglements potentially, but they're not as in, as entangled. All right, Russell B. from Austin, Texas. It's not like we haven't tackled this question in the past, but he has a little bit of a unique perspective. Living in Austin and being a big college football fan, I go to almost all of the Texas home games, and I'm wondering why you guys and most of the media are so high on Texas. Last year, beating OU was impressive, but then they lost on the rematch. They lost to a bad Maryland team. I was at the Tulsa home game and the Baylor home game, and they barely won those games. They easily could have lost both, 
and those teams were just awful. It seems they are getting a big bump for winning the bowl game against a UGA team that, let's face it, was not thrilled to be there. Stu, you often say that people place too much emphasis on bowl game wins, so what gives? I think, Stu, you need to answer that because, like he said, you're the one who plays, who says you put more too, people put too much emphasis on the, on the postseason. I do put a lot of stock in, look, I was at the Maryland game. Our, our crew did that. You know, he's talking about Tulsa. That was the week after. I think that, you know, we had Maryland, Texas, and then we had TCU, Texas, which is, a, I don't know, not even a month later. And you saw a lot of growth from that team and Sam Ellinger. And I think even as the season wore on, that's why I do put stock into how they finished the year. And I know they, you know, they lost to, to OU in the Big 12 title game, but OU was a good team. I'd be more concerned that they really struggled at Kansas, quite honestly. But just seeing how they played, I thought they got a lot better as the year went on. I thought it was telling, and I think it's good for their confidence the way they went you know, toe-to-toe and pretty much manhandled Georgia. I know it was a seven-point game, but they were in control of that game. That's why I have so much stock in them. And I, I, like I said, I'm a big believer in Sam Ellinger. I think they have a lot of firepower on offense. And I think offense is going to be good enough or big enough to get them out of the Big 12 this year. I think, you know, I started the offseason exactly the way he feels, where, okay, don't get too excited about the bowl results. You know, if you looked at some of the advanced stats, They weren't projected to be anywhere close to what I think they're going to be in the AP poll, which will be in the top 10. But to your point, they were not a great team at the beginning of last season. They were a very good team by the end of the season. I mean, not only did they beat Oklahoma, the the second game, the rematch was close. You're talking about a one-point loss to West Virginia. You know, beat Iowa State, who I thought was a pretty good team, 24 to 10. But really, my why I started to get back on the bandwagon or on the bandwagon uh, is almost entirely because of Allinger. I think. I don't think I appreciated how much he grew as a quarterback last season, and actually by the end of the season was probably one of the better uh, dual-threat quarterbacks in the country, could be a real star this season. And also, they've, the last couple of years, really struggled uh, in being explosive. They just haven't had those big-time running backs and receivers. And, and of course, one of the guys who we thought might be there this year, Brew McCoy, is not. But I would not be surprised if you see significant improvement at the skill positions this year with some of the younger players they have just because they meet the eye test, that's for sure. Obviously, young players, you never know how quickly they'll they'll develop and be able to make an impact, but I think that Tom Herman has definitely upgraded their, their playmaking ability at those positions. This question is from Patrick in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I love the podcast and all the great writing at The Athletic. Anyways, I wanted to know what you think is a more of an impressive accomplishment. Ohio State consistently being relevant on the national stage for over the last 30 years, or Clemson's recent dominance of winning two titles in three years. So longevity versus short-term success. Which is it? I, th- I included this because I think it speaks to... It's really interesting because I'm sure that if we threw this out to the audience, we'd get answers <laughs> on both sides of it. Obviously, what Clemson has done is remarkable, and especially given that where they came from to get to this point where they would win two national titles in three years. But I definitely think longevity is harder. You know, the Ohio State is arguably the only program I can think of. I mean, everybody else, right? Alabama was mediocre for a decade or more before uh, Saban got there. Oklahoma, mediocre before Bob Stoops got there. You know, every one of these blue blood programs has gone through, since I've been covering the sport, you know, at least one drought, like Texas this past decade. Ohio State, and it really never has. You know, since I've been covering it, they've always been in the mix nationally. 
and that's spanning three different coaches if you go back to John Cooper. So it also speaks to, I, you know, look, I get it. Like the national championship's the prize, and, and it's really easy to just say, well, this team won X number of national titles. They won, Clemson's won more in the last, um, or has won as many in the last three years as Ohio State has in the last, what, 50? You know, 2002 and 2014. But it also kind of speaks to how, especially pre-playoff, how arbitrary a measuring stick that is. Because, you know, in some years it was it would come down to, you know, whether they were, which bowl game you got placed in. Or maybe Ohio State had a bunch of teams that went 11-1 and or 10-1, and whatever, and didn't get a chance to play for the national title. But Clemson, you know, a couple of years ago, their team lost to Pitt and did get to play for the national title. So... When you think about it that way, it's kind of a random way, in college football at least, to measure success. You know, I, I mean, you said in your lifetime, I, I, mean, you're, I don't know if it's your lifetime or your time covering it. And just going back, because before we got this question, I was like, let me look at Ohio State's year by year. Because I knew, you know, remember a little bit of the Woody Hazer, but certainly I wasn't covering the sport. I mean, this run of, and I don't want to say they've been great every year, but because there was a few losing seasons here or there, and there was a three, five, and one year for Woody Hayes. There was a there was a four and five year, but just you got to go back a long, long time. You got to go back to like I want to say, you know, maybe even into the I don't even know what into the third into the twenties. Well, they the weren't that great years. in the eighties. I mean, I feel like they went. Didn't they go a long? No, period? they were. They were. They weren't that great. But here's what Earl Bruce did. Earl Bruce had six years in a row where he went nine and three. That's not that's not great, but that's not bad. I mean, right. so I mean, just consistently, and then he had a ten and three year, and then I guess he got fired after going six four and one. But you you're just finding a run where they had true, you know, nine and three isn't mediocre, right? I mean, you're not finding that at all. I mean, you're just you got to go a long way to find back when they were had a had a stretch, and I'm talking more than two years. Like in, in 46 and 47, 46, they went four, three and two and 47, they went two, six and one. And then, but you know, they're sandwiched around seven and one seasons. So it's a, you know, kind of a staggering amount. If you have lived in your lifetime to remember multiple years of really crappy football in a row from the Buckeyes, you're about a hundred. Yeah. I think the closest thing would be the, um, the transition from Cooper to Trestle, where they weren't that. Let's see, they were. Uh, Trestle was seven and five in his first year, and then he went fourteen and. Yeah, up. so they were eight. And Cooper, and four, the year Cooper got fired, they went eight and four, which is not the worst thing in the world. No, it's not. Let's just use nineteen ninety three as a starting point, okay? Because that's twenty five years of football. Here's really quickly. I'm just going to rattle off their wins. 10, 9, 11, 11, 10, 11, 6, 8, 7, 14, 11. 8, 10, 12, 11, 10, 11, 12, 6, that's the uh, Luke Fickle year, 12, 12, 14, 12, 11, 12, 13. I mean, there's no other program in the country that has done that for that long. So, so you I agree? Guess, so I, 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 at the end of the day, you agree, right? In the grand scheme of things, that's probably a more impressive accomplishment than Clemson's, yes. which is now, pretty now damn in, impressive. To defend Clemson to some degree here, if Clemson is in the midst of a stack, of a run where they rattle off you know, three national, more national titles in the next four years, then we can assess that. Right. I, w- I would agree with that. Because the hardest thing of all is what Alabama has done under Saban. 
And if Davos is ramping up to do something like what he's done over the last 10 years, then that might be a different story. And by the way, they may well be because on the day we're recording this, the all-ACC preseason team came out. And I remember last year, they, the entire first-team ACC defensive line was Clemson players. And that was pretty remarkable. Well, this year, eight of the 11 positions on offense are Clemson players. Basically, Bud Elliott threw this out there, Florida State, uh, Tomahawk Nation. Would, an, would Clemson's starting lineup beat an all-star team of the rest of the ACC? I don't know. That's not a good look for the ACC to be. <laughs> no, it's not. And I'm, I'm inclined to say no. Uh, but, you know, that's a, that's a purely fantasy scenario. But I guess I didn't realize how good their offensive line is considered to be because obviously you knew Trevor Lawrence would be there, Justin Ross, Travis Etienne. But, like, three of the five offensive linemen were Clemson players too. I do think, though, that, you know, offensive line, I think I, you take a little bit with a grain of salt when it comes to our media colleagues. I would agree with that. I the only people I think it's just a, a factor of rec- name recognition, and quite honestly, when Clemson, it's almost like you're going to default to some of the Clemson guys. Well, Clemson just had a great example of that, actually. Mitch Hyatt, who started as a true freshman on a playoff team, and therefore, once that happens, you're kind of guaranteed to be all ACC every year after that, and then he didn't get drafted. So that tells me that we who were voting in it didn't necessarily know what the, the coaches, uh, or didn't necessarily know how to evaluate him the way the coaches would. Chuck Huddleston. Hi, Stu and Bruce. Great job on the podcast. Bruce, it seems you have a pretty good relationship with Chip Kelly, unlike local L.A. media. I'm a longtime Bruin fan and season ticket holder for the second year. I also follow the team and recruiting very closely. I know it's early, but UCLA seems to be striking out on recruits that is targeted, not just four- and five-star recruits, but three-star recruits. Is Coach Kelly going to be able to overcome the talent and depth deficiency it seems to be mired in and establish UCLA as a top-tier team? And also... Why is Coach Kelly so tough on the media, considering it's the entertainment business and we get our information from the media? I'd love to hear more from him. The latter is a good question. I don't know if it's necessarily unique to him. I think he is a he is more of a more of an established example of that. But I think we see plenty of coaches who are not who are pretty critical of the media or skeptical of them. He actually flipped completely, though. In his early on at Oregon, he was pretty darn media friendly, and then. When the uh, Willie Lyle thing happened, my sense was that he—that's when he became closed off. I don't know. I don't know if it's. I don't think it's that as cut and dry of that. You know, look. You know, we have our colleague Aaron Fentress who just joined the Athletic. He'd probably be a good barometer of that because he was there day to day. I don't get that sense. Now, look. I mean, I felt like I had a pretty good relationship with him before, and I feel like I have a good relationship with him now. But I do think there are certain things that he's not as much open to, and that's the hey, I'm going to give you a tour of my place and then you can write a story about that. Like those are not, that's not something I feel like he sees much value in. As far as the recruiting part, and this is a, I think this is an interesting subject. You know, in a lot of ways I would compare, their systems are different. But to me, Kelly and Mike Leach are very similar in this regard. They have a very defined set of what they, and I don't think it always lines up with what the guys who rank recruits value. And when Kelly was at Oregon, he wasn't getting top 10 classes. Now, they weren't 40th, but they were not. I mean, one of the classes that had a big role, and I think them playing for the national title, I want to say, was ranked in the 30s. Now, it turned out to have some really good talent, but I think what he values is different than what they value. 
And, and look, Mike Leach's team is made up of guys who are ranked in the 50s and 60s. And I think what you're seeing from Chip Kelly, he's gone after some of them, but I don't think he goes after them the level that some other schools go after them. So I think there's going to be quite a gap between what he values and what they value. I know from having this conversation with him, three or four of the biggest recruits that he felt like in his class, one of them was a guy, was an offensive lineman, was a four-star guy who you know, was, was ranked high by the recruiting class of recruiting sites. Some of the other ones were not. And, you know, he's looking to recruits to fit a system. And I think, you know, talking to him, some of the stuff that he, he, he seems to really put a premium on are some of the same things that he says, Bill Belichick puts a premium on. Those are not necessarily things that maybe show, show off in like, the camp circuit or the combine circuit. I think that's where the gap is. We shall see. I mean, I think I think it's fine if guys obviously have their own evaluation system and maybe they pass on some highly rated guys, but, you know, they really struck out on a lot of targets this past year. And, you know, when he first got to Oregon, it's not like Oregon is a school that traditionally signed top 10 classes. They've certainly gotten to the point where they can do that occasionally now. But UCLA, I mean, Jim Moore was recruiting top 10 classes. I know they didn't pan out, here's the but they have, they have pull, that they have cachet. That Let me as a program. bring this up, though, when it comes to the Jim Mora part, because I got into this a lot in my state of the program a couple of months ago. That is the extreme example. They were signing kids basically off the list. If you look at where those top 15 classes, most of those kids, and this is, an, this is an issue that I think that they have tried to sort out over in Westwood is, who are the kids who truly love football and who are the kids who look like they're good at it? And you have a pretty big disconnect there. I mean, most of those kids in the Josh Rosen class was a top 15. And Rosen turned out to be, obviously, was a good player, but he was, you know, he was three and out. Many of those four-star kids didn't do anything at UCLA. They're not still at UCLA. They were, you know, they just didn't pan up. Like some of the five, Nikkei Juarez was the number one recruit in the country. Didn't do anything at UCLA. You know, now he's trying to resurrect his career at Utah. I mean, yeah. they had more high-profile busts of those highly ranked classes than probably any school in the country. And I think one of the things that this staff has tried to really get a better feel on is who are the guys they feel like they can count on and develop. And because that was the piece that clearly was missing in Westwood. The stat that blew me away after signing day when they had the uh, number 43 class in the country, UCLA offered 44 or five star recruits and signed just one. So I think I'm still. I'm. I'm not throwing in the towel after one season on Chip Kelly. I, not after what he did at Oregon, but obviously rough first season, not pulling in the recruits according to two four seven and rivals. So I think if you're our listener here who's a season ticket holder, you want to see start seeing results this season. It'll be interesting to see. You know, what do we you see a little bit the... of sizzle this year. Look, they did beat. They did beat SC. So. It wasn't that completely you, lost cause. What do you cause. think would be, I mean, we were just talking about Tennessee with David. What do you think would be a realistic second year where if you're a Bruin fan, you'd be encouraged? I would say the thing, the difference here, right, is that the competition UCLA will be facing in its conference is not what Tennessee, I mean, Tennessee has to play Alabama every year. They're going to have to play Georgia. You know, the Pac-12 being what it is right now, I, I guess I, I would expect a bigger jump. Uh, seven. Well, I would expect to see maybe eight wins. Okay, but the difference I think that there is, I will grant you, you know, look, UCLA has to host Oklahoma 
who's you know a, definitely a heavyweight. But I, the point I would make here is when you're in the SEC, you have four non-conference games. Right. So they're going to play Georgia State. They're going to play BYU. They're going to play Chattanooga, and they're going to play UAB. That is a much easier road to get to four wins just to start than what UCLA has. UCLA has Cincinnati, who won 10 games. They have Oklahoma, who was just in the playoff. And their third team is what? Is it Fresno or is it San Diego State? Again, I would say that you just have like an easier path to get to. I mean, UCLA can't get to, you know, they don't have gimme wins necessarily. Yeah, I would, um, I will, I will recast what I said before. There are three non conference games at Cincinnati. Versus San Diego State versus Oklahoma, uh, which all is very similar to last year. They played. Than, yeah, all three of those games are tougher than each one of the four non-conference games that Tennessee has. Yeah, they play, and they played last year. They played uh, Cincinnati, Oklahoma, and Fresno State, and they lost all of them. So, I think you'll, the measure will be more in Pac-12 play. Okay, you're playing at Washington State, who uh, was obviously great last year, but but loses their star quarterback at Arizona. Who I do I, I'm starting to wonder if we're underselling Arizona just because if Khalil Tate's now healthy and has a year in that system, we we could see a pretty exciting player like we did two years ago. Oregon State should win that game. At Stanford, they haven't beaten Stanford in a long time, but I don't think that Stanford's unbeatable. Arizona State, beatable. Colorado, beatable. At Utah, that's the you know, they're considered the front runner in that division right now. And then at SC and then versus Cal. There aren't a lot of games on that conference schedule that you would say, oh, yeah, UCLA's got no chance. No, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But by the same token, we're just, we were just talking about Tennessee. You know, you're talking about the four, you know, cushy non-conference games. They have Vandy at home, right? You know, they play Mississippi State. That's winnable. They play South Carolina at home. That's certainly winnable. And Kentucky and Missouri on the road, so... So let's leave it at seven wins would be the goal for both of them. I would agree with that. Okay. I think that's, that's reasonable. All right, last question, Bruce, uh, from James Birdsong, regular uh, contributor to this segment, uh, asking about a team that I know you have a little bit of an interest in right now. Hey, Bruce and Stu, by the time you're reading this, I'll be in Las Vegas for a work conference, and while there, I'll be splashing a small amount of money on some college football futures for the upcoming season. Hear me out. I don't think the Golden Gophers will win the Big Ten if they get to Indianapolis, but I think they could at least get there. Given the odds, which are 50-1, to 1, I think it's well worth a flyer and a hedge if they are in the mix late. They were all over the map last year, getting blown out by Maryland and Illinois, but also hammering Purdue and Wisconsin. Are they worth a shot in the dark? Uh, I mean, you could be throwing away $20 pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, we ha- as, as you mentioned, alluded to, we have them uh, week one. All right, we have a double, so we have a Thursday night game, and they are playing the Jackrabbits, a good FCS team from South Dakota State. But after that, they got to go to Fresno. That's not going to be easy. Now, look, I don't think, you know, that's not going to affect necessarily whether they get to the, uh, when they get to Indianapolis. And their schedule, I don't know. I look at it and say, okay, this is what you get from the, from the East at Rutgers, right? Maryland at home, Penn State at home. You know, that's about as good a draw as you could get, right? They should be good on defense with Carter Coughlin, who's one of the best edge rushers in college football. They have three or four really good running backs. They think the line has improved. I just a little skeptical if they have good enough quarterback play to uh, to do what you're asking. But I don't know, fifty to one with that schedule, you know, PJ Fleck. 
he's talking, you know, he's, he's doing all the talking right now to get everybody riled up and, and feel, you know, like he's, he's not backing away from hyping up his team right now. Cause I feel like his first year, he knew it was going to be a rough year and last year, the way they finished the season. I don't know. Still, it's not my money. So I would say, sure. Throw they, 20 bucks. Well, they definitely kind of quietly ended last season strong and it kind of came as a surprise. Now they fired their defensive coordinator. I want to say, Two thirds of the way through the season, and it had had greater impact than you'll almost ever see. Um, yeah, Joe Rossi's the new DC. He had really simplified a lot of things, and PJ Fleck will tell you really likes you know kind of his temperament and how he's a teacher. And I think they made some good staff moves to help support him on that side of the ball, especially in the secondary. I, again, I just come back to I don't know if they're going to be good enough at quarterback to do all this and late in the year and we talked about the schedule late in the year they do got to go to iowa and then play your alma mater on the road and then wisconsin i mean you know what those three things have in common they're all really physical hey the big 10 west is a meat grinder you know i mean whoever comes out of that division i'm i'm sort of exaggerating i'm sort of being sarcastic but i am interested to see how things shake out this year because i could see any anybody but illinois so six teams if you told me they win the Big Ten West this year, I wouldn't be surprised. Now, Minnesota would be the one I'd have the least confidence in uh, out of those six, but yeah, I'm just looking back now. It's kind of crazy. They they lost a game at Illinois, who was terrible, 55-31 to 31 on November 3rd, and at that point they were 4-5. and five. They fire the D.C. The ver- they go from losing 55, or giving up 55 points to Illinois to the very next week beating Purdue, the same Purdue team that, that embarrassed Ohio State, 41-10. to 10. And then they lost to Northwestern 24-14, but then they whooped Wisconsin on the road 37-15 and then beat Georgia Tech 34-10 in the quick lane bowl. So it's clearly something changed there toward the end of the season, and we'll see if uh, P.J. can keep the momentum rolling. I would be remiss after you kind of broadsided Illinois in that because uh, I think Illinois will be much improved. If I told you Illinois was going to get to a bowl game this year, what odds would you give me on that? First, tell me why you think they'll be considerably improved. They have good running backs. I think he's upgraded the speed quite a bit. And I looked, you know, because I think they should start out 3-0. and I mean, their non-conference is very, very winnable. Akron at UConn and then Eastern Michigan. I don't think they're going to beat Nebraska at home, and I don't think they're going to win at Wisconsin at, at Minnesota, and I don't think they're you know they could they could drop the next four or five games, but they they do have Rutgers at home, that gives them four wins. I think I'm not saying it's a gimme, but I think that gives them a good chance to get the four wins. I don't think it's a stretch. I think they can pick up two wins somewhere else along the way and knock somebody off. Crazy. No, it's not crazy. It would be, I mean, this is his Lovey Smith's fourth season, so if ever you're going to see them actually get it done, this would be the year. I just haven't seen anything from him in the first three years that give me confidence. You know, so could they Could they be a better team this year? Sure. Are they going to have this huge breakthrough? I just, uh, I'll believe it when I see it. What percent chance do you put on it? 25% on, chance? On going to, what, to a bowl game? Yeah. Um, that sounds about right. Okay. I can live with that. Okay, so now watch them go and win the Big Ten West. After I, after I <laughs> said the they were the only team that, that couldn't win it. Do you, do you agree, though? I mean, it's, 
you're saying they might go to a bowl game. That's fine. Yeah. That's believable. You're not saying I'm not ready to say they're going to win it. No. Okay, I but I think that's I'm going to list you six other schools. Are there any that you would say, oh, they're definitely not going to win the Big Ten West? Northwestern, who won it last year. Iowa, who I think is going to be really good. Wisconsin, who I expect to rebound. Nebraska, who is kind of the trendy um, bandwagon mm-hmm. pick here right now. Uh, Minnesota or Purdue, who, I don't know, has, has done a lot of nice things in Jeff Brown's first two seasons. Yeah, no, I I would agree with everything you said. I I don't I don't want to play contrarian so much that I'm like, oh, you're crazy to think Illinois has no chance because I I think that would be the one that would be a a, a shocker if they did it. But I do think they're going to be better, and that's I don't know if looking back at this now, I wasn't thinking of this com- conversation, but like. I think the Big Ten West might be the most competitive division in, the, in I'm trying to think if I want to really say this, uh, in all of Power Five. You might be right. And now I think people right now who are listening to this might say, what are you guys talking about? It was awful last year. And <laughs> the team that won, you know, it's not, it wasn't <laughs> a great. The that was awful was that they didn't win any numbers. <laughs> yeah, it was not a great testament to the Big Ten West last year that the team that won the division went 8-4. and four. But think... Nobody else just quite... Well, first of all, Wisconsin was a huge dud last year, huge disappointment. And then the other ones, I mean, I think Iowa was a disappointment last year. I think they should have had a better record. I think they should have beaten Northwestern in that game that you were at. But they're going to have a really good defense. Again, it's just like, which of these teams is going to put it all together? Uh, it could be a situation where, you know, where you've seen in the um, ACC Coastal at times, where everybody just, nobody's quite good enough to go on a run and Everybody ends up five and three, and then nobody's going to talk about how strong it was. But I do think if that happens, it'll be more about the strength and the depth of that division than everybody stinks. Fair enough. I think we've covered everything. I think we've covered everything. You're off to Pac-12 Media Days, and then uh, next week, I think as it seems like every team in the country is opening camp on August second. I keep seeing that date everywhere, but that's next week. So exciting times. Okay. Send emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octave. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB and subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over here.